morning again. Thank you. I am Wallace Hoggett, and I do thank you all for your kind invitation today. Thank you, Rod, for inviting me and for that very nice introduction. Greetings from Sky Island Unitarian Universalist Church in Sierra Vista, Arizona, where we did used to have a minister named Rod Richards. Uh, He showed a lot of promise. I wonder whatever happened to him. But I'm sorry to say that I do bring bad news, really bad news. The holidays are coming. (laughs) Today is the first Sunday in Advent. Today, tonight, at sundown, Hanukkah starts. But fortunately, we have some help today in facing the upcoming holidays. We have some help from Archie and Mehitable. As you heard in the piece that I read by Don Marquis, Archie is a cockroach and Mehitable is an alley cat. In the introductory poem that was published March 29, uh, 1916, originally Mehitable was referred to simply as that cat. It was only later in compilations that she was given a name. She was actually given a name about six weeks or so after she first appeared. But she needed a name because she definitely was part of the production involving Archie and the cat and the other residents of Shinbone Alley in New York City. Archie and Mehitable were the creations of Don Marquis, who was a poet, a playwright, and a newspaper columnist. In the early 20th century, Marquis wrote about Archie and Mehitable and their fellow Shinbone Alley residents, and he wrote about them in pieces that mocked human foolishness but also promoted a charitable spirit. Archie's pieces appeared for almost 20 years, from 1916 until... 1935 or so, a couple of years before Don Marquis died in 1937. Archie, who, as you heard, labeled himself a former free verse poet, called these pieces poems, although that description is debatable for some of them. Marquis used Archie as his mouthpiece to comment on international affairs, about domestic politics, literature, society, just about anything you might expect from a newspaper writer with a lot of column inches he had to fill up. It's easy to see in Archie and Mehitable the influence of some of the great philosophical schools of classical Greece. Archie is part cynic, part stoic, and Mehitable, she's pretty much purebred Epicurean. Toujours gay is her motto, toujours gay, always happy, always gay. Now, with such differing attitudes towards life, you might wonder how Archie and Mehitable could possibly get along. And the answer is, well, uneasily, at least at times, because Mehitable is a cat, and cats sometimes eat bugs, and Archie is a bug. But Archie is smart enough to hide under the keyboard whenever Mehitable is in the mood for an insect hors d'oeuvre. 
But for all of that, they are friends. And I think they're friends because Archie recognizes in Mehitable someone who is comfortable in her own personality. Not that Mehitable always tells the exact truth. She claims that in a prior life she was Cleopatra, but she seems to know nothing about Mark Antony or Julius Caesar, but she says she used to be Cleopatra. Who are we to question her? But if, if Mehitable is dishonest about her past, she knows who she is in the present, and she doesn't try to be anything else. Archie has a powerful religious sense. As one of his modern editors put it, Archie could have claimed theology as his favorite sport. But neither Archie nor his creator would ever have wanted to be counted among the orthodox. Archie once wrote this. The dictionary, he says, the dictionary says heretic, a holder of an unorthodox opinion. Do you know anybody who isn't a heretic? I don't. Now, heretics are frequently far more religious than the Orthodox. In fact, that's how they got to be heretics in the first place. Don Marquis was a devout heretic. That's why two of his poems, non-Archie poems, but two of his poems have been used as lyrics for hymns in that UU Gray hymnal that you have right next to you. Look at 304 and 337 if you don't believe me. I don't think that Don Marquis, however, knew he was writing hymns at the time he wrote those poems. It would have amazed him, probably. Marquis believed in the integrity of the charitable heart, and because Marquis believed it, Archie typed it. Listen to how Archie ends what is otherwise a rather whimsical poem about how fly swatters endanger the livelihood of spiders. But this is the ending of that piece. He says, I will admit that some of the insects do not lead noble lives, but is every man's hand to be against them? Yours for less justice and more charity, Archie. I first discovered Archie and Mehitable when I was 14, and I got a cheap paperback edition from the Scholastic Book Club. I hope that's still going on, the Scholastic Book Club. I got a lot of books over the years from them, and Archie and Mehitable was one of those. Somewhere along the way, though, I lost that paperback, but when I was in my 20s, I was in a used bookstore, and I came across a hardback edition, which is the one I just read from, and it's complete with the illustrations by George Harriman, the creator of Crazy Cat. They're great illustrations. I still have that book. I will have that when I die. <laughs> For a long time, I thought that someone should reincarnate Archie and Mehitable and bring their voices to bear on our contemporary world. Well, nobody seemed to be doing that. So a few years ago, I did. And now Archie sends his work to me. He emails me his work from 
an address that goes by Archie at ShinboneAlley.com. Long ago, he addressed Don Marquis as boss, and that's how he refers to me now. By the way, since cockroaches on average live about a year, I estimate that we're now up to Archie's 103rd incarnation as a roach since 1916. And Mahitable, well, she's basically immortal. Uh, I'd now like to address an important point. I'm sure many of you are thinking about this. Undoubtedly, a lot of you spend a great deal of time thinking about the copyright laws, and, and I certainly do. <laughs> and you might, you might wonder, aren't fictional characters covered by copyright laws? And am I in serious danger of being sued for copyright infringement? Well, the answers are yes and no. The fact is that fictional characters, if they are sufficiently defined or central to the work of fiction in which they appear, can be copyrighted. That's why that none of us here could ever start a new television show called Tony Soprano, The Early Years. At least we couldn't do that without paying a lot of money for permission. We'd probably have to pay it to some waste management company in New Jersey. <laughs> but on the second question, no, I'm not in serious danger of being sued for copyright infringement for appropriating Don Marquis's characters because, generally speaking, Things which were copyrighted before January 1st, 1923, are now in the public domain. And that's why that any of us, if we wanted to, could publish Little Women Go to Washington, <laughs> in which Joe March and her sisters confront misogyny and corruption in the White House. <laughs> and... And we wouldn't have to track down Louisa May Alcott's heirs to make a deal. Many of Archie's poems, the poems that were published in 1923 and afterwards, may still be under copyright, although even that's sort of questionable. But those that were published before 1923 are in the public domain. And most important for our purposes is that the Archie and Mahitable characters who were created before January 1st, 1923, are fair game because, well, because of the date. I doubt that the, the executor of Don Marquis's estate will be knocking on my door. Uh, one last point, important to mention, but comes in handy once in a while. These pieces are fiction. Any resemblance of my characters to, <laughs> to actual cockroaches or alley cats or Shakespearean actors or anyone else is purely coincidental. And now, with thanks to Archie and Mehitable and with apologies to the memory of Don Marquis, I have two of Archie's holiday pieces. And we'll start with Archie and Mehitable Among the Magi. Well, boss, 
Xmas is soon to be upon us. And please don't tell me about all those preachers and pundits who rail against Xmas as shorthand for Christmas. They are entitled to their opinion, but they'd think otherwise if their souls were all transmigrated into the bodies of cockroaches and they had to hurl themselves headfirst against the letter keys one after another without any melon rinds or bacon bits to keep them going, then they would learn the value of abbreviation. It's true that keyboards these days require a lighter touch than the old Underwood I started out with, but I still suffer many headaches for the cause of poetry. <clears throat> Last week, my feline friend Mahitable told me a story suitable for the season. She's been getting cozy with an old tomcat named Gaspar who says he was once one of the wise men who followed the star. Mehitable quoted him as, uh, as follows, to wit. We weren't kings, he says, just down at the heels, astrologers trying for a little favorable buzz, hoping to expand our client lists, make a few extra shekels, never claiming to be royalty. Oh, except maybe Melchior, he always had delusions of grandeur. And we weren't even very good astrologers. We misread the sky charts. The star we followed wasn't the one for us. We later learned of another star lighting the way to a sermon delivered on a hill. That was the trip we were meant to take. We were 30 years too early. As it happens, we almost missed the family we thought we were supposed to see. They were clearing out for Egypt. The man told us he dreamt the king's army was coming to kill the newborn. The woman wasn't happy, just delivered of a child, having to flee to another country. Painful travel she had ahead of her, not like she could sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. She said, I hope this son of mine grows up to be more down-to-earth than his father, not such a dreamer. My sympathies were with her. This whole get-out-of-town-now thing struck me as a really bad plan. But, bad plan or not, we didn't want them to starve on the road. We opened up our traveling bags and gave them some olives and dried figs and the only full wineskin we still had. We watched them head south. At the time, I didn't think the odds were with them. I tried to tell all this to Matthew, but he just wanted to talk about gold and frankincense and myrrh, I guess because rule number one for travelers is before taking a hike of a thousand miles through the desert, be sure to load up on frankincense and myrrh. <laughs> and all that gold he was talking about, well, you know, if we'd had some of that, we wouldn't have been down at the heels now, would we? And Luke, huh, he was completely clueless. He didn't even know we were there. He talked only to the shepherds. For 2,000 years, we've gotten credit for being the supporting cast in a miracle, 
But the way I see it, all we did was blunder into somebody else's domestic drama. So that's his story, Mehitable told me. This time of year, Gaspar needs cheering up. A good fish dinner will take his mind off his troubles, she said. And I should get one, too, for helping him through these trying times. And licking her chops, she slinked off toward the alley behind the mermaid oyster bar. I don't have to remind you, boss, that cats do not always tell the absolute truth. They learned a lot of bad habits from the human race after they domesticated you. One of them being dishonesty. So maybe Gaspar lied to Mehitable, or maybe Mehitable lied to me, or maybe they both got hold of some serious catnip. (laughs) But then again, the story might be true. A couple of days ago, I had lunch with a blue jay named Sophie. We shared some crumbs I found in the bottom of an old Doritos bag. Good thing for me she's a vegan, or she might have thought I was on the menu too. Sophie is the smartest bird I know. She's read the works of the great thinkers, Plato and Confucius and Tina Fey. She has a generosity of soul not often found in these harsh and hate-filled days. I told her Gaspar's story, and I asked her what she made of it. She said, we shouldn't be mesmerized by miracles because they are so common. Every birth's a miracle, not to mention the transmigration of souls. What we should celebrate, rather, are deeds of mercy and words of grace. Not so common, those. I asked Sophie if I could quote her. She said, not in front of the other cockroaches. They won't like it. They'll call you a heretic or worse. Well, yesterday I did quote her in front of the other cockroaches, and they didn't like it. They did call me a heretic and worse, and now I'm not invited to their New Year's Eve party at the Four Seasons. But I'm not sorry. I wouldn't take back a word. I didn't really want to go anyway. Too many drunken roaches saying and doing the same things I've heard them say and seen them do I don't know how many times. It's hard to feel a warm, optimistic glow about the new year when nobody around you seems to have learned anything during the old one. Boss, you told me I could give your audience my Xmas wishes. Well, here they are. This season, may our families be tolerant of us. May our friends be loyal to us. May our enemies be few and forgiving, or at least forgetful. And may this Xmas be filled with more peace and charity than experience gives us any reason to expect. Archie. And now the uh, second half of our double feature. 
Archie and the best tree money could buy. Twenty-two years ago this fall, boss, when I was in my 81st embodiment as a cockroach, I got out of the city, rode the rails, ended up in Ashland, Oregon for the Shakespeare Festival. I saw Macbeth three times from backstage, Midsummer Night's Dream twice, also the Merry Wives of Windsor, but only once. The guy they had playing Falstaff, I swear, he must have drained a few tankards before the show ever started. Probably a method actor. Between acts, he almost stomped me. I got out while the getting was good. When the festival season ended, I hopped a laundry truck for Medford, just up the interstate. I took up residence in a small, under-insulated house with a leaky roof and a furnace with antisocial personality disorder. A girl of about seven, maybe eight, lived there with her mother. The girl was named Keisha. Her eyes put me in mind of morning coffee with cream. I learned her mother's name from all the bills she left unpaid on the table addressed to Miriam Jones, including some from a credit card company whose directors should have been sent to Sing Sing for loan sharking. At 4.30 every morning, before heading off to join the labor force, Miriam drank her coffee by herself, black only, no cream for her. She would crouch over her cup, holding it close, as if some unseen hand might try to snatch it away without warning or excuse. I lived with them when fall turned to winter, at night when Miriam got home, Keisha would ask about a tree. Could we get it tonight, she'd ask. All my friends have their trees up now. We have the ornaments from last year, and I have a star for the top. That's where the star is supposed to go. Isn't that right, Mom? Miriam would look at her purse and say, we can't get it right now. We can wait Till the night before, that's when we'll have enough. That's when we'll get the best tree money can buy. On holiday eve, Miriam could put it off no longer. She and Keisha went out to find their tree. They came back two hours later. No tree in sight. I'm sorry, Miriam kept saying. I'm so sorry but her sorrow was mixed with something like relief. Keisha said through her tears, I'll show them to run out of trees. And from a closet, she pulled out her umbrella, blue and well used, but still functional. She opened it and put it in the corner and found the cheap glass ornaments her mother had bought the year before. And she put one glass ball at the tip of each rib of the umbrella. And a cardboard star covered with aluminum foil found its way to the top of the center pole. Keisha said, look, Mom, now we have a tree after all. Miriam said it was a fine tree. 
the best tree money could buy. After Keisha went to bed, Miriam took a few small packages from her hiding place. These had been wrapped in the Sunday comics pages. She put them under the umbrella. Late that night, long after Miriam had abandoned herself to sleep, Rasputin the rat, a rodent of repellent aspect not to mention behavior, came out from behind the wall where he lurked during waking hours. He kicked the handle of the umbrella hard enough to knock half the glass bulbs off. They shattered against the floor. I yelled at him, Rasputin, you rat, why wreck that girl's creation? It's not much, but she was happy with it. Rasputin laughed with the nastiest laugh in the history of nasty laughs. He said, ha, you can tell that kid the shards of broken glass are snowflakes that floated down from heaven. And he kicked the umbrella again so hard all the remaining bulbs crashed too. And then he started to chew his way through the wrapping papers to foul the contents within. Boss, you know just what a coward I can be. I couldn't bear to stick around and see Keisha's face when she saw what Rasputin had done. Though I hadn't planned to, I left Medford that night, found an eastbound train, and by New Year's Day got back to Shinbone Alley. I thought today of Keisha. She'd now be the age Miriam was then. I wonder if Keisha still lives in Medford, in a house plagued by Rasputin's heirs. I wonder if Miriam lives nearby and if she still sends monthly tribute to the loan sharks. I wonder if Keisha still has that blue umbrella and if she ever thinks back to the night it was the best tree money could buy. I wonder if she herself has a daughter who brews her mother fresh coffee in the morning and adds just enough cream to match Keisha's eyes. Yours for more trees and fewer bills, Archie. Well, that's all I have time for.